Welcome to Dan's Talks. My guest today is Linda Willett, who uh, is a resident of East Hampton uh, on James Lane, overlooking Town Pond, and um, has quite a story to tell about swans. Because from James Lane, you're right across the street from where the swans can come ashore and peck at automobiles that park to say hello or in in an inter you know interface with people so tell us a, a little bit about uh, what you got interested in and tell 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 us a little bit about how you came to East Hampton and why you, how how you came to that house and we'll talk further about that well, thank you, Dan, and thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's great fun, and swans are one of my favorite topics. So I married my husband in 1975, and uh, I think it was roughly 1980 we started talking about buying a summer home. At the time, we lived in New Jersey, and I assumed we would buy a summer home on the Jersey Shore. And he said, oh, no, no, my family has been going to East Hampton for years. And I said, Long Island? Um, I had never been to anything other than Levittown, Long Island, and I thought that was what all of Long Island was. But he drove me uh, out to, and I didn't, I don't remember seeing beach in Levittown. Um, he drove me out to the east end of Long Island, and I fell in love with the environments, environs. And the house that we that I currently live in was not our first home. We bought a small a uh, sweetheart of a house in Amagansett, and then we bought a bigger house in Amagansett. But I kept on weekends looking around at houses, and I came across this absolutely dilapidated house at, on James Lane that needed love and care, and it was for sale. And um, my husband had purchased the wine store in the Red Horse Market. At the time, it was the um, Wines by Morel when he passed away, we had to rename it. So it's now Vin 74 Wines and Spirits. <laughs> but he was spending a lot of time at the store. So I spent a lot of time looking for projects. And I found, I thought this house was a project. And the added value for me of the house, I love water interests. Well, we had Town Pond. And I love cemeteries. And we had the uh, Old Town Cemetery and at the time, the pond had the most beautiful wildlife, swans, ducks, muskrats, great big old nasty snapping turtle. So that was the beginning of the story. I remember everybody was uh, upset about the snapping turtles eating the little baby duck's feet underneath yes. the water and couldn't see it. But if you could imagine it, it was bad. So, and, and the pond would uh, get full of algae back then also. I remember one night going by it at two in the morning when some bonnikers were out there. Uh, you may remember that. They were out there with their uh, waders and uh, they had these five, big big tire tubes with baskets in them and they were cleaning the muck up off the bottom and listening to radio music. And it was quite, it's always been a very interesting pond and I'm curious to know where where the house you you were exactly, because there aren't very many houses there. No. So um, for you and for your listeners, if you're familiar with Hedges Inn. Yes. Um, if you were standing in front of Hedges Inn, 
uh, and facing Route 27, mm-hmm. and then you look to your right, um, the first thing you would see is a long private driveway that is the driveway of one of my neighbors. And then the next house is 36 James Lane. The next is Jeffrey's Road. And my home is on the corner of James and De- Jeffrey's. And then right next to me, still moving toward the East Hampton Village, is the old Bill Gardner house and, right. then, and then the windmill. So uh, you're right smack. Look, you're you're 50 feet from the pond. 100. I am. I am. And the property that my house is on was deeded to Henry Hobart in 1908 by his uh, fiance's parents, the Jeffreys, to build a summer home for their daughter. And he built this house. It was finished in 1914, and it was built as a summer home for Isabel Jeffreys. But you said it was derelict or falling apart? So the Jeffreys owned it for a few years, and uh, he passed away, then she passed away. It was deeded to somebody who lived in Texas who never saw it. That person sold it to a family named the Robertsons. Now, at the time, the house did not have any heat, and the uh, it, it, the bed, every room on the first floor and the second floor had fireplaces, and the maids used to light the fireplaces in the summer to take the chill off the air. Um, there was also a carriage house with a real chauffeur. And when the Robertsons bought it, they said they wanted to live there all year long. So they dug a big hole under the kitchen and put a uh, a boiler in it with 30 some radiators throughout the house. Wow. Yeah. And they lived here, I think about 60 years. Mm. The house fell into disrepair as the Robertsons got quite older. And then they passed away and their children moved away and they sold the home to a New York City couple who wanted it as a summer home. But they ran into some financial problems and were never able to renovate it. So it just got worse. Those pipes were leaking. The carriage house was standing on its side. (laughs) Somebody had put put asbestos siding on the house, which was hideous. (laughs) Um, The whole third floor, uh, the plaster had caved into the room. When I brought my husband to the house and told him I had made an offer on it, he said, can you tell me why? (laughs) And I said, well, somebody has to save it. (laughs) So tell get to the swans. The the swans mate and stay together for life usually, except for rare divorces, not like our current day divorces uh, for people. But they're there. And I remember, I don't know if this happened. Yes, it did. They made this beautiful eight-foot nest. Yes. Right in front of your house. It yes. Was right on that yes. corner. Yes. And it was all twigs, and it was about the size of a, a king-size bed. Yeah. And and then uh, the the female laid some eggs in there. And tell what tell us what happened. What happened after that? Well, so I I want to take you back to 1999 when I bought the house, still having a lot of time on my hands, and I was a photographer, film photographer at the time as a hobby. And so I decided I wanted to take pictures of the swans. First, because if you can just picture a town pond at that time, it had a lot of foliage around the edges, beautiful irises and reeds. Um, And there were lots of ducks and lots of swans and they kept the algae down. And on a very still day, 
one could see a complete reflect reflection of a swan. And so I would sit out there until the water was just not moving at all. And I would get uh, many, many pictures of the swans reflected. And then I'd pick the best one, blow it up and try to trick people with it to say which way is the right side up. Um, I was trained as a scientist. And so I decided that, that maybe what I should really be doing is trying to get the whole life cycle of the swans. Wow. So I was out there every day I could be taking pictures. I did, this is going to sound macabre, but I did get pictures uh, of the snapping turtle dragging a baby under the water by its uh, baby swan by its uh, feet. And what the snapping turtle does is it drags it under, it drowns it, and then it eats it. Um, but hey, everybody has to have lunch, right? <laughs> um, and I would take pictures of the males and females every year. I would take pictures of them with their babies, you know, sitting on their backs, taking rides with mom. Uh, but one year when that eight foot nest was built, I thought I had hit pay dirt. Yep. And I took pictures of the eggs, which are smaller than ostrich eggs. They're, they're sort of like a six, seven inch uh, diameter egg. Uh, the circumference maybe being about eight inches. And the mother or the father, they took turns sitting on the nest. They would keep turning the eggs and mm -hmm. they would take their beaks and they would turn the eggs. So I have pictures of the egg turning, uh, oh. pictures of the mom or dad, I don't know which one, sitting on the eggs. And so I had kept a chart over the years of roughly when the swans were hatching. And I had pretty much figured it was a particular three days in April. Oh. And so I decided that I was going to sit at a reasonable distance with my telephoto lens by that nest. And the the first day I did it, I sat for 12 hours. Is this on the side of the, on the grass there or from your house? I was sitting on the grass by, on their side, on the, on the swan side. But they, they didn't seem to be bothered by me because for years I had fed them I fed the muskrats too. They used to come up and sit next to me. Um, but after 12 hours, I thought I have to go into the house. I went in for five minutes. Oh, no. And I and know those babies pecked their beaks up and out they came from the eggs. I came back out and there they were. Mm. At least I got them newborn. You sure did. That was that was wonderful uh, that whole time. And I, could, was there any way that you could be sure it was the, every year after year it was the same couple? The the uh, couple that I photographed for most years, the father had an unusual wound on his uh, his beak. So you know they have this black part that comes up with a black. <laughs> yeah, uh, yours is totally visible, right? Yeah, and the knob part on the the male looked like it had been bitten or sliced. He had a pretty bad scar. Ah. So I was sure the male was the same. Now, whether he had a different lady friend or not, I'm not sure. <laughs> Do they stay? My observation of them this year, and I spoke to the mayor about it, it looked like they flew off and, and went south, but they don't go south. What they do is go to a larger body of water, and I found them in front of my house. Uh, on three in Three Mile Harbor. Yes. Uh, so tell us what you know about where that. What do they do this time of the year, and when will they be back? I'm sure they're coming. The mayor said he feeds them every morning, or did until they left. 
Well, uh, I want to talk about why we haven't had swans back since the dredging, but I'll come back to that. Uh, at this time of year, a lot of them hang out at David's Lane. You know, there's that wonderful uh, uh, nature walk with a, yeah, uh, a lot right. of water. And there are a lot of swans there. Um, you know, some of them, there's a the, the great big uh, water body, um, just as you're going out of Bridgehampton, a lot of them hang out there. We actually had swans in, in some years on this pond through winter. They would be sitting on the ice mm. and I would go out and, and would feed them. I'm here full time now, but in those years it was just on weekends. But then they would they would disappear after a while. Uh, you know, I think the issue now is that uh, I think the the dredging of the pond was conceptually a good idea. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the bioswale at the very end is a good idea too. Animals wanting to hide in there, but what swans and ducks want to do is they want to swim across the pond all day and duck their little beaks in and eat all that algae that's growing. Mm. In fact, when you see the ducks and their rear ends are in the air, it's so darn funny. And the swans do it too. You know, they're they're constantly all day long. They're doing this eating. And we used to have maybe 50 ducks and half a dozen swans keeping that pond pretty clean. But the whole perimeter of the, the pond now is, is naked. Um, there are no, there's no foliage, no wild irises. There are a few trees, but nothing to really protect them. Th that if they need to quickly dive into a bunch of irises to get away from a predator, of course, they can pick themselves up and fly to the end it's not as open and is not as fun. So my hypothesis is that swans and ducks aren't staying very long because although food is there, there, there really is no protection around the perimeter. So what I do see every morning are two lovely men who get into a canoe and they just rake up that algae all day long. I didn't know that was going on on a daily basis. What do you think should be done that would be helpful to the swans? I would replant the perimeter. I would put the beautiful irises back and the other uh, types of plants that provide a nice nesting area for them. Yes, that's I, that would and and that would be right in front of the house. So you have not the, not so much the other end because well, there are places where you can right where you are, you can pull over in a car, but further to the east. There are places where you can just walk alone on the on the side, and you always could. It wasn't it wasn't some place that I knew that had a lot of foliage there. It's only in certain places you could you could put foliage there and not have to have it everywhere. Oh, absolutely! In fact, contiguous with the cemetery, there wasn't any foliage. It was just on the main street side there were clumps of foliage, and on the James Lane side, and it really created a beautiful almost crown around the pond. You know, some of it got overgrown, and uh, I think the Ladies' Village Improvement Society was taking care of some of it. And from time to time, I'm a member of LVIS. We've talked about, you know, uh, approaching the town about replanting and then caring for all of that. I did want to, we, we have about five minutes, and I did want uh, listeners to uh, know about uh, your your. Uh, prior life other than a swan person, which was your corporate lawyer. And uh, 
tell us a little bit about how you got into that and and then that would that would be a help i think and, well, as I mentioned, I started out as a teacher. I had an obligation to teach because I'd gone to a school on a scholarship that obliged me to teach chemistry for three years. I left teaching and went into the pharmaceutical world in, in uh, at the dawn of information science, if you can imagine that. So your, your listeners will know how old I am. And at some point, uh, I think I was about 39, I just I had always wanted to go to law school and I said to my husband, you know, I think I'm going to take a little break from work and go to law school. And I had a, my husband's deceased. He's been gone for 16 months and he was the most marvelous human being. And he said, of course, you should go to law school if that's what you want to do. And so I did. And I graduated um, in 1989, uh, went to a firm in New Jersey. I remember when they interviewed me, they said, well, you're a little bit old for us. We're the we're the oldest and most prestigious law firm in New Jersey. And I said, well, then old shouldn't matter. You're 200 years old. I'm only 41. Uh, or maybe I was 42 at the time. Uh, started there and then lucked out and brought in a very big client. And I became a partner there my third year. Oh. And then uh, a few years after that, my client asked me to come in-house to lead their law department it was a pharmaceutical company. And uh, I actually did retire from that when I was 61. And then uh, my husband and the dog both felt that I had retired too early. So I went back and I worked for another company, a healthcare insurance company for 12 years as their general counsel and retired for real in 2021. So I my specialty was corporate governance. To uh, World of Swans, and uh, there was some. I'll, I'll end by a question. Uh, I've been trying to locate something I heard about, which was someone was was keeping a diary about every day about the swans. And was that you, or do you know who that might have been? No, I. You know, I think a friend of mine might have mentioned that he thought I was keeping a diary, but I wasn't. I was doing a photo. Uh, an annual photo essay on the swans. How did how can people see the photos that you've you uh, prize for this? Are they well, I I think I have some in digital form, and I've been thinking of taking them somewhere and seeing if I can share them. Many of them are old film and uh, and negatives, but if I have digital ones, they can be shared. I have to check into that. <laughs> yeah, we can do it online. That would be the place. Yeah. To... Well, thank you. Thank you for being on this. Um, that's a wonderful story. Um, I did want to note that um, the state of New York has, I'm not going to tell a specific story, but the state of New York has decided that swans must go unless their friends are at a particular location. They they are in, not indigenous, whatever the hell that means. And somehow they came here from Belgium or someplace when people thought they were very pretty and decorative. So they should all be sent back somewhere else uh, because they are aggressive and they take over a place. But that's not been my observation. They are aggressive, but they are always threatening. They never actually harm anybody. And I, I do think they a bully a little bit with the other birds in the pond, but nevertheless, they all managed to get along. And I, I would don't see why the, 
to have such a law. It's a terrible law. It's my opinion. Well, I'm going to have to look into that and get a group of friends together to say that should not happen. I agree. We want our swans. We can keep them as long as we uh, are fond of them. As near, I can't quite tell what the way okay. you say it. It's the ones that show up and are new and they're supposed to be captured. And this. nobody wants to do it anyway. No. So <laughs> thank you for being on the podcast. And thank you for the wonderful story about the photos you've taken. Well, thank you. I was so honored to be asked, Dan. It's lovely to meet you through Zoom. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Goodbye.